0: morning, guys. The best stories all begin the same way. The best stories all begin the same way. Apache Indians' stories of creation, of the beginning, start like this. In the beginning, there was nothing, no earth, no living beings. There was only darkness, water, and cyclone, the wind. 11th century Icelander Snorri Sturlson, what a name, says it this way In the beginning, not anything existed. The Cherokee Indians, the earth began as nothing but water and darkness. The mossy people of West Africa, in the beginning, there was no earth, no day or night, not even time itself the Hopi Native American tribe. The world at at first was endless space in which existed only the creator. The Wichita. In the beginning, there were neither sun nor stars nor anything else that we know today. Even an ancient Chinese text around the 4th century BC. Long, long ago, when heaven and earth were still one, all the matter of the universe swirled chaotically. And of course, the Hebrews said it like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The Apostle John, as we just heard, Goes even further back, he begins the story with Adam, but John sees that even this is not enough to say who Jesus is. Before Abraham was, before Adam was, before time was, God was. It was by God's word that all things came to be. All that is, is by God's word. For God's word is not other than his deeds. Notice here at the beginning of our chapter, the first chapter of John's Gospel, that John doesn't name Jesus directly, but he calls him what? The Word. John boldly begins his Gospel with a direct link back to the story of creation. John wants to start his work the same way the Hebrews started theirs, which is a a bold move. Um, it would be like if I got up here on stage and I said, four score and seven years ago, right? I would be equating myself with someone of the significance of Abraham Lincoln at that point. Or at least what I had to say would be as important as what he would have to say. And so John's words here are communicating more than what he's simply saying. John is saying that you're reading what you're reading and the person you're going to meet in this story is as significant as the story of creation. And that person has a unique relationship to the person who was in the story of creation. In fact, he is the fulfillment of that story. Jesus is the fulfillment of the original story of creation. And so John wants us to see that what you're reading is a story that's just as important as that one back in Genesis I want to begin by having us kind of look at the Rembrandt, right, that we talked about John painting scene after scene. In these five verses, we've got a beautiful picture here that John is trying to show us. Read read along with me. On the left side there, you'll see, here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and he was with God in the beginning. The allusion to their Genesis, in the beginning, God Created the skies and the land. But there's another allusion to Proverbs 8, where uh, wisdom is personified. Wisdom is a, a person, Lady Wisdom. Yahweh possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works from of old. From ancient time I was established from the beginning. So John is alluding to a couple of different passages here. Yes, Genesis, but also that this word is the same person who's described in the proverbs as wisdom personified. And then again in proverbs 8:30 there I was beside him as a master workman or craftsman. The word is the God who's on page 1 of Genesis. The word is also distinct from the God who's on page 1 of Genesis. John having lived with Jesus and learned from Jesus, wants to set up his book in such a way that the reader begins to rethink who God is. So before introducing Jesus as Jesus, John intentionally says he is the Word, which would have been understood as he is God. And yet, at the same time, John is saying he's distinct from God or from that story. He's reshaping our understanding in light of who Jesus is, which is only fully understandable in light of the end of John's gospel in the scenes of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, typically, this is not what comes to mind when we think about God. And for the majority of us, modern thinkers, just like for the ancient Near East, it's difficult to reshape the way that we think about God. But that's part of John's goal at the outset of his gospel here. There were folks in the ancient Near East who understood the concept of having multiple gods. There were folks who understood the concept of having one god, but both. Both, multiple and one, which is it? This is why the first sentence of John's gospel feels illogical to us when we read it. A person cannot exist as a person and be distinct from that person at the same time. But apparently, according to John... That is what God is like. He is both that person and distinct from that person. This is the mystery of the Trinity. Look again now to verse 3. All things came to exist through him, through the word. Apart from the word, not one thing came into existence which has come into existence. Right? So here John's alluding to The creative acts of God. And what is God used to create in Genesis? God said, let there be light and there was light, right? His words create. Proverbs 3, by means of wisdom, Yahweh founded the land. By means of understanding, he established the skies. Again, John's alluding to the wisdom of God. And then Psalm 33, by means of the word of Yahweh, the skies were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And finally, look at verses 4 through 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of humanity. And the light was shining in darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it or overcome it or understand it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from The darkness, right? You see the Rembrandt that John's painting here. John's alluding to Genesis 1, Psalm 33, Proverbs 8. He speaks of God's spirit hovering over the face of the chaos. It also has God's words. God said, and then there was creative acts, and that's the way that he creates. It also says that God created all things by the word, by his word, and by his breath. What is that word breath in Hebrew? Ruach. I'm not saying it very well, but that's kind of it. And you know what that word means? Breath. See, it's, the, it's another word for spirit in Hebrew. By his spirit, or by his word, right? What happens when you speak? Breath comes out of your mouth. By his breath, or by his words, by his spirit, God creates. And this is... What John, John is activating all of these little allusions here in just a few short verses. And this is the Rembrandt, right, that John is known for, giving us another Rembrandt painting. He's subtly alluding to each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so even the word Spirit hasn't been directly spoken, but John has alluded to it through these links these Old Testament passages. He's also linking these images with Jesus after the resurrection when Jesus breathes on his disciples in John 20. Look at this. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he what? He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So it's God's creative act that makes everything. And John is saying that that person was Jesus. And that it was through his words, through his breath, his ruach, through the Spirit of God, that God made everything. That Jesus was with God in the beginning. Before time, before Abraham, before Adam, before everything, Jesus was. And that he's, the, he's responsible for all. Now, what does John want us to see here? If Jesus is reality. If Jesus is reality, then John wants us to see two things, I think, primarily. First, that Jesus Christ is the one and only God of all creation. There's the exclusivity of Jesus that I think John is trying to get us to see here. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But secondly, by nature of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, all things came to be. That out of who God is in his Trinitarian person, that's what birthed creation. It is a reflection of who he is and what he's like when we look around at the world and the relationships we have. So I want to briefly address the exclusivity of Jesus. Um, because I think, oh I didn't put it up there, I'm sorry. The exclusivity of Jesus. Um, for many people, the claim that there's only one way to God. Feels, I think, offensive and abrasive to our, especially our modern minds. How can you know there's only one way? Isn't it possible that ultimately everyone's seeking the same God? Each religion is just touching on a different part of what God is like. No one religion sees God perfectly, they say. I think that this sounds nice and it sounds inclusive, but hold your horses. What does Tim Keller help us? He he offers these two objections in his book, Reason for God. The first is that All major religions are equally valid, and basically they teach the same things. Ironically, the insistence that beliefs or doctrines of different religions, that they don't matter, is actually itself a doctrine, a belief. It holds a very specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing that they forbid others from doing, right? Because they say everything's the same, everything's equally valid, but in doing so, they're speaking from a place of particular insight, aren't they? Where they, How could you know that all things are equally valid then? You've heard of this illustration of the elephant before, right? That, that, that you've got blind men who are... Who are Basically, God is this elephant and there's blind men who are touching the elephant. And so some say, well, God is like a long snake, right? Because of the, the nose or what's it called? Not a nose. Thank you. Trunk. <laughs> or God is like a tree, right? They're touching his hind leg, right? And so it's like, well, all religions are, are basically the same. They're all kind of describing the same God, except for there has to be someone outside of the blind men who's standing there looking at all the blind men saying, they're all blind and we're all kind of touching the same thing. And it's from that person's vantage point that we know that, the, that there's no difference in religion. Ultimately, we're all describing the same God. It's a self-defeating position. Secondly, Keller offers this objection. Each religion sees part of spiritual truth but none can see the whole truth. And this is similar to what I was just saying. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have that superior angle or view or knowledge of spiritual reality you just claim that no one can have? Right? Mark Lilla, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, was speaking to one of his students. Mark is not a believer, um, he would describe himself as an atheist, and he was speaking to a student of his who was considering uh, becoming a Christian, and this is what he says. He says, I wanted to cast doubt on the step that this student was about to take, to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, to love, even self transformation." I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted to save him. Doubt, like faith, has to be learned. It is a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, both ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers or evangelists for the unbelieving position. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Why would you care so much about what others think if you yourself don't think it matters? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have one for myself. This professor's wise self-knowledge reveals his doubts about Christianity Christianity to be a learned alternate faith. It's a different kind of faith. He believes that the individual's dignity as a human rests as a human being rests on doctrinal skepticism, which of course is an article of faith. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that there's only one way to think about all religions. Namely, that all are equal. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but just in different ways. So, that's my brief aside about the exclusivity of Jesus, which I think feels kind of uncomfortable to our modern minds, but that I think, when you really step back and look at it, is not so brash or abrasive. Secondly, I want to look at the logos, Lagos or Lagos, I think Lagos, Lagos? We'll go with Lagos. John spoke to a world which the God, which thought the gods in terms of passionless, thought of gods in terms of passionless, apathetic beings and serene having serene detachments. He pointed at Jesus and said to his contemporary hearers: Here is the mind of God, here is the expression of the thoughts of Of God. Here is the Logos. And men were confronted with a God who cared so passionately and who loved so sacrificially that his expression was Jesus and his emblem was a cross. John was speaking to Jews and to Greeks, to both believers and unbelievers in his day. And the unbelieving world that he was speaking to would have had a particular idea in their minds of what this word meant. The word, logos, here's what they would have thought of it as. For Stoics, by the way, Stoicism, according to its teachings, um, is just the path to happiness where you don't depend too heavily on your emotions, but you lean into logic, right? That's also where we get the word logic from is logos. When you think of someone who is Stoic, what are they? They tend to be lacking emotion, right? They're not basing how they feel, rather how they, they're not basing their actions on how they feel, but rather how they think, or what's logical. And so for Stoics in John's day, they would have understood this word, logos, as the seat of reason. It's something that's impersonal, and it's something that's a force, or it's the, the principle that governs the universe. In Stoic philosophy, Lagos was used to refer to the impersonal principle of reason, which was thought to govern the universe. And John was able to find a term here, the word Lagos, that is able to be both biblical in meaning and super relevant to his context. So by using this term, John is giving expression to their deep conviction about the rationality of the universe. They did not think of the Lagos as personal, so they didn't or they wouldn't understand it as God. But for John, right, what he's showing us about the Lagos is that it is the mind of God. That it is personal and intimate. And that ultimately it is the power of Christ. The Lagos, alike for Jew and Gentile, represents the ruling fact of the universe. And it represents the fact, that fact as the self-expression of God. The Jew will remember that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. The Greek will think of the rational principle of which all natural laws in particular expressions have been made. Both will agree that this logos is the starting point of all things. John was using a term that with various shades of meaning was in common use everywhere. He could count on his readers to catch its essential meaning. John's a smart cookie. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the nature of the Trinity that John gets at here. And one of the best sort of explanations of the Trinity or or words on the Trinity has been written by Paul Pastor, who is a local pastor. Actually, his last name is Pastor, which is funny, but um, he's an author. He wrote this book, The Face of the Deep, that the women's study is going through right now. And this is what he says. In my most rational moments, the doctrine of the Trinity is delectable torture. In my most worshipful moments, it is a glorious personal joy, a mystery of faith prompting us to contemplate and adore. At every moment, it is a reminder that no one is ever alone and that community, love, and belonging are not simply cosmic aberrations, but the root of nature, or but the root nature of reality. Out of who God is, he created everything that we see, that we that exists. And it's out of his relationship within himself, the father with the son, the spirit, that God made all things. And so I want us to spend the, the last several minutes of our time together, thinking about what are the implications of Jesus being reality? What are the implications of Jesus being reality? God has designed the world to work in a very particular way, in an ordered way, and when we live against that design, against the reality with which he's made us to live, we're choosing to descend back into the void, as Genesis 1 calls it, the dark and formless void, the wasteland, the chaos. But when we join Jesus in recreating and renewing the world, we then live into his reality. And there's lots of ways to describe these things, but the source matters. Jesus is the way to understand how we ought to best live. And so you think of things like rest and work. What happens when we overwork ourselves, right? Eventually, we will need rest. But where do we learn this, right? In the scriptures, God has set things up. He's designed the world to work in such a way that rest is mandatory. And we see this out of his own creative acts where he rests on the seventh day, right? It's out of who he is that reality exists. And that when we rest, when you and I rest every week on a Sabbath or vacationing and we rest well, we contemplate and we look back at what God has done and how he's been faithful to us, we're literally rehearsing heaven. What heaven is going to be like is going to be an eternal rest with the Father. And so on earth, we have the opportunity to practice that rest now. You think of other things like striving for success or striving for happiness i want to be happy but if you're only striving for happiness for happiness's sake right and not for the sake of others will you find happiness you won't ultimately find it pursue anything for its own self as as the as the end right we will miss it this is this is god is the creator right and all of these things in life money happiness success These are simply shadows of his creation. But when we pursue the shadow and we think that this is the end, this is the win, the shadow, instead of the substance from which the shadow comes, we find ourselves filled or empty? Ultimately, empty. It may take us a while, some of us are pretty stubborn, but we will find ourselves unhappy Because that's not the way he's designed the world to work. You think about the relational nature of who God is in the Trinity. That before anything existed, things like kindness, love, gratitude, joy, all of those things existed before time did. Because the the Father and the Son and the Spirit were experiencing that within the Trinity towards one another. And so often we see relationships in our day, it's popular to see them as commodities, right? They're a means to an end, which is to serve myself. Ultimately, we have this thing called network culture, right? I wanna be really good at networking because I want to benefit my brand, bro. Everyone wants to be an influencer. Have we, have you guys heard of these terms? I mean it's everybody wants to be in it. Why? Because ultimately You, I want to influence you to serve me, not because I want to help you. (laughs) And ultimately, that leads to sadness and unhealth. Rather, we ought to see ourselves as each other as image bearers. There are no mere mortals. We are in the likeness of God. We are like him. There is a God and his name is Jesus. And he made everything by the power of his word, and this sounds rudimentary to seasoned churchgoers. I know we've heard this over and over again, and it feel, but it feels like a total logical fallacy to most Portlanders. Why should I accept the Bible is correct in saying that God is Jesus and that Jesus created everything? Well, just look at John chapter 1. Right here, it says that he, he created everything. In the beginning was the Word, was with God, and the Word was God. And according to our Western sensibilities, though, why is this a bad answer? Right? Because it's circular reasoning. That's what we would be accused of. Well, I'm asking you to prove the thing with which you're using to state your claim. You can't use the very same thing that you're using to prove it. But here's what we tend to overlook the fact that all claims in reality are ultimately circular. All truth claims about knowledge and about the state of things are circular. If I asked you to prove, that you were right about your understanding of the world, and you had a material, materialist worldview, which you said, there's only material, the natural world, that's all that exists. And I would say to you, how do you know that? How can you know that you're right? Prove your reasoning. Yes, I can, by my senses, and by the scientific method. That's how I know I'm right. Well, how do you know that your senses are correct? How do you know that the scientific method is accurate? Well, by my logic and by my reasoning. But how do you know those things are right? Well, because of my senses and the scientific method. You see, ultimately, all things are circular. And the issue is which circular reasoning best explains reality? Which reasoning ultimately makes the most sense of what we see and experience day in and day out? I'm not only a Christian because I believe in the resurrection. I'm a Christian because I think that Christianity, this worldview, makes the most sense of reality as we understand it or as I experience it. And so I want to end by just asking a couple of questions. Does your relationship with God resemble a reality that you find quite easy or comfortable? If Jesus is reality and we do bear his image, then things like art and beauty and creativity actually have meaning and value. If Jesus is reality, then words like hope and peace are not lofty, far-off things. They are real, tangible realities. If Jesus is reality, then everything has meaning. Everything has meaning. But if he's not, if he's not real, if Jesus isn't reality, if this is wrong, then nothing has art, beauty, creativity. Why? Why bother? God is recreating the world, and he's doing it through Jesus. And that's what John wants us to see here. Everything we experience is the direct result of God's creative work. God's work has been distorted by sin and by rebellion. And so the Father is recreating the world through his presence, his ruach, his spirit, indwelling each one of us by way of his Son's life, death, and resurrection. After Jesus ascended into heaven, a new kind of reality has become possible. He was responsible for the creation of all things. And with the resurrection, Jesus is responsible for the recreation of all things. And so this passage should draw us to marvel, to worship. That God is God of all, maker of all. So I want to end our time today with a beautiful video. It's of a a spoken word poet. Her name is Amina Brown. There's a little bit of music over the background, and the words will kind of display in a creative way on the screen. I just want you to sit back and to worship and to marvel at God's goodness that Jesus is reality. Amen?
1: He is here. He's right here. In this room in your heart. He is near, nearer than breath, heartbeat, nearer than you are to you, closer than second chance or next opportunity, closer than tonight or yesterday. He is real, more real than touch, see, hear, smell, or taste. More real than reality. He is our reality, more real than joy, pain, sorrow, or the love of being. He is present like space, wind, time, silence, night. He is waiting like creation, like words on the tip of tongue, like songs that have yet to be sung. He is beauty in oranges, blues, every hue, every shade, sunset and sunrise, whisper his name. He is holy, cannot be touched, explained, like sweet seconds of prayer, like grandmother on knees. Wood floor bare, he is old hymns, the extending of limbs, stretch across trees, Strives to heal disease, he is son, distinctly three, distinctly one, the only one, the only wise, the only resurrector of lives. God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon,
0: we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.